Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. Okay, so just want to introduce you first. We're here doing a training with David Swanton at Miami Life Center. And I'd say it's been like equal parts learning to equal parts laughing. <laughs> We're having a really good time. And I especially love like all your stories. You're such a good storyteller. Um, we wanted to kind of have a chat. You seem to have a lot, seem to have a lot to say. Um, and one thing that keeps coming to mind for me, you have, you've been practicing Ashtanga for a long time. Well, we just learned you started a long time ago. There was like a little bit of a break and you made your way back to Ashtanga, but you've been in this community of Ashtanga yoga for a really long time. And, you know, compared to most, and I'm curious in a, a broad stroke perspective how you've seen the evolution of ashtanga yoga change and maybe even or maybe stay the same in in how it's been taught and how it's been learned through the students how have you seen that progression over the years so yes i began ashtanga in 1973 so it's been almost 50 years um and that moment you were talking about when i did not do it it was when i was pursuing uh, the Hare Krishna way of life of bhakti yoga and I was told that I shouldn't do asanas um, but then the last year or so they did start to sort of accept that asanas might be an okay thing um, so that was that moment I didn't other than that it's been a companion of mine for most of my life so I'm now 66 so since I was 16 when I started Ashtanga it's been there and I'll say that the yoga hasn't changed so much, but the people that do yoga has changed. When I learned this, if you look back in the history in the U.S., the people interested in yoga in the late 1960s and, and the 1970s were hippies. And hippies were not really in a hurry to do things. If you say dude, you know, this is going to take, it's a lifetime. Like, oh, I got nothing else going on. So sure, why not? So there was this idea that it's okay if it takes a long time. As yoga progressed, it moved into the mainstream. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And part of that came because of celebrities doing it. Like when Madonna was doing Ashtanga and Sting and they would talk about it. And then it became kind of cool. Like, oh, people want to do it. Yeah. 
it doesn't matter why someone wants to begin, but what's interesting is what keeps people doing it. They got some kind of an experience, right, that keeps people doing this for decades. But then as it became more mainstream, it meant it wasn't just hippies doing it anymore. Hippies still do this, but so does everyone else. How does the average, very successful business person become successful? They work longer hours than anybody. They're there in the morning before anyone arrives. They're there at the end of the day. They push and they build a business. How do the athletes become successful or the dancers, right? Wow, you, you push your body beyond and you're in pain and you push and strive and your body is beat up and you become successful. The musicians, they're practicing for hours and hours and hours and their fingers are just raw, but they're going to get learn these pieces and they become successful. So they come to yoga. And in yoga, one of the first things we say is, welcome to yoga. There's no competition in yoga. We're all equal. And it doesn't matter, you know, if you're young or old, it's not a competition. It's a lifelong journey. And I personally really like to say the strongest trees in the forest grow the slowest. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And so you give this whole talk about yoga and how it's not a race and, and you don't have to push so hard. Now, what some of these people just heard you say is, welcome to yoga, blah, 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 yoga, blah, 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 yoga. Or they understand, but they're like, I don't know who you're talking to. That is not how I've become this successful, strong person. That's not how I built this business from the ground up. It's not how I became this prima ballerina or this great athlete. Or, And I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to, what's the fastest anybody's ever gotten through this first series thing? Mm-hmm. How hard can it be? It's called first. And, they, and they're ready to just blast. And what are those limbs? What's that? And, and what's that samadhi thing, the eighth one? What's the, I'll, I'll be there seven o'clock tonight. You can't blame them for this attitude because that has been a formula for success in their life. But in yoga, we end up beat up and it's counterproductive. So something that has evolved over time is not the yoga, but those interested in it and the psyche of people practicing. So how people respond to it becomes a little different. And it's all okay. But as a teacher, you see the different elements and the different ways that you might have to present it, even though it's the same asanas, the same thing. You're trying to keep that fired up person safe. You don't want to stomp down on their enthusiasm and you're trying to keep the timid person engaged by moving them forward. So that's those are a couple of things. Also, just the sheer number of people doing it. Right. Yeah. When I went to Mysore, there were three, maybe four people there. That's it. You'd get adjusted in everything. Nowadays in Mysore, there could be hundreds of people. So it's not that one is good and one is bad, but it's different. When there's so many people, the student doesn't get the same amount of attention So the way the teacher has to present it is also different because there's this room full full of people that might change it a little bit. So those are some things I've observed. But I will say that Ashtanga Yoga is intact. People are doing it. And if you went to a class in those early days with us, other than, you know, we looked different because we all had long hair wearing Speedos. (laughs) 
which yeah, it's well, it's nice that part of that mm-hmm. equation is gone anyway. And um, but people are they're they're breathing, they're moving, they're, and and Ashtanga is still here. And it's interesting to see how the evolution of it it, it carries on and maintains what it is, even though the world around is is changing. And I figure it'll keep doing that. Yeah, I think it's pretty amazing that after all of these years, I mean, even if we go back to Krishnamacharya, like it's still flourishing and we're still maintaining, teachers like you are still maintaining the essence or what I've come to learn is the essence of Ashtanga, which I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is contained in those five elements that you, you talk about, asana, breath, drishti, bandhas, vinyasa. and vinyasa. And you know, the teachers, they have their own kind of way of teaching and their own personalities, which change, add some changes and add some uniqueness to how students are taught the practice. But that essence is still there. Um, I mean, is, do you have anything to say about that? About like, you know, like to what extent can teachers add their own uniqueness without losing that essence that has that has stayed alive through all of these years? We would have to define what the essence is, mm-hmm. your understanding of the essence, right? So the five things you mentioned, and this is just something I came up with to try to explain. So there's ujjayi breathing. Though some will say, no, it's not ujjayi breathing, it's sound breathing. And I'm like, well, that's just semantics. Ultimately, we're meant to breathe with sound. Yeah, That sound is like our mantra. It gives us a focal point. It gives immediate feedback. For the teacher, but also as a practitioner. If I hear my breath is harsh, (gasps) that tells me trying too hard. Or if we've gone too deep, the breath stops. Or the breath is too shallow, we've spaced out. So there's that. Mm -hmm. All right? Then there's the drishti. We have points of gaze. And even if you don't know those specifically, it keeps you moving in a specific line of energy and a posture and filters out distractions. So when we apply those things... You're, learn, you're applying the essence of Ashtanga. Yeah? We have bandhas, uh, internal movement of energy through these valves, mola bandha, uriyana bandha, jalandhara bandha. And so by applying these other unseen forces, that's another element. Yeah? The asanas themselves in Ashtanga is rather unique because there's a predetermined sequence. It's like choreography, like the Nutcracker Ballet. Yeah, or let's say it's a Beethoven symphony. Those notes are on a page and they're played for all these centuries, but it might sound different if the Tokyo Philharmonic plays it or the Miami Philharmonic plays it. It's the same thing, but it's going to be a little different, little nuances. Yeah, And vinyasa is this precise linking of one posture to the next. When you apply these things, you end up with the essence of Ashtanga. So if you change any of those things dramatically, there's a sequence. And even from the time Patabi Joyce was here, and even the way Sharat might teach today, the differences, you could count on the fingers of one hand in primary series what's different. It's not like it's dramatically different. It's minor things. But if suddenly you see... Well, somebody's halfway through primary. I'm going to throw a few second series postures in here. Maybe I'll do it an arm balance in there. Now you're changing it. So when you go too dramatically away from those five things and that sequence, I don't have a problem with it. I just say call it something else. Otherwise, 
if you're learning the Nutcracker Ballet, it is what it is. Yeah, there's a sequence and you turn there and you lift here and you plie there and you do it. And it's what it is. There might be little nuances from one company performing it to another, but it's not like you're going to come in there and they're wearing Doc Martin boots and it's something else, right? It's, oh, that's the Nutcracker Ballet, I see. Yeah, or that's Giselle or something. And so I look at it like that. It's only when you go way off the side. Yeah. And even if you want to do a Nutcracker Ballet with hip-hop music and boots on, that's okay, but you would call it Nutcracker hip-hop or whatever. Yeah. Suddenly you, you understand it's something different. Yeah. So the nuances, the small changes are fine. And the bigger changes is what gave birth to things like vinyasa yoga, vinyasa flow yoga, jiva mukti yoga. They came from the essence of Ashtanga. And those people, out of respect, changed the name Mm -hmm. because they altered it and kept the principles of it and called it something else. So it's all okay. And I suppose it's up to each person to decide just how far something can stray from the essence before you call it something else. But I mm-hmm. think that the way I described it should give some kind of a guidance, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe even stepping back even further, if you can speak to this, because I know you, 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 you teach, which I, I very much respect, you teach from what you've learned and from what you know. But even stepping further back, how... Did Batavi Joyce and Mr. Iyengar maintain the essence of what Krishnamacharya taught them? Like they, they both had something in common because they had the same teacher, but their practices were, were, were so different. So there is some essence that was maintained there. And what so I guess my question is like, what is that essence that came even further back before Ashtanga Yoga? Patabi Joyce says all yoga is Ashtanga Yoga. Mm-hmm. Which ultimately is true, like Patanjali. We're describing, you know, it, it's all Ashtanga Yoga. Um, I even heard Iyengar once give a talk, and he said, you know, you, it's all of you saying these things are so different. If you look at a tree, there's all these individual branches, but the peak of the tree, the point of it, it's the same tree. Yeah. So there's differences. And I wasn't there when Krishnamacharya taught these guys their yoga. Yeah. I only have stories told and I am no expert in Iyengar yoga. I've been to a few classes and I have dear friends that are Iyengar teachers and practitioners. I respect the system. Um, And even Patabi Joyce, sometimes people would ask him about BKS Iyengar and he never really commented. He just said, I'm just teaching what I learned from my guru. Mm And if you explore a bit about Krishnamacharya, you see that he didn't necessarily teach everyone the same, mm-hmm. right? Iyengar, his body was not strong when he encountered Krishnamacharya. And he, correct me if I'm wrong, I think he had tuberculosis or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And so he was taught in a more therapeutic manner, possibly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I even heard Iyengar comment once that he said, this is Iyengar speaking, it is I that brought in this ideas of alignment mm. and these props. It's, it, he created this system from what he learned from Krishnamacharya, but then he built upon it and developed his own system. Hence, it's called Iyengar Yoga, right? Yeah. 
His name is right there on the handle of it. Yeah. And Patabi Joyce just says, this is what I learned from my guru, Krishnamacharya, right? So I suppose they're teaching what they learned, or maybe in Iyengar's case, he's teaching what he learned, but he expanded upon it into ways of using yoga and therapeutics and holding posture longer and precise alignment to bring in a whole nother depth of understanding to an individual asana. Mm -hmm. I think of it like we're Maybe you're analyzing one photograph and every minute little detail, all of the minutiae of this one image. Mm -hmm. Or you get 50 or 60 slides and pull them along and Ashtanga, and then you have a movie. So Ashtanga is the movie. Mm -hmm. It's how one relates to the next and the next and the next. So it's the overall um, energetic expression and linking with the experience being all these different asanas rather than the one or the two. Yeah. But as far as why they were different, I mean, they're different personalities. They learned from the same guy, but many Krishnamacharya taught people differently. And I think they both just shared what they learned and, and shared it with enthusiasm in their heart. And then from there, other things will happen. Like I said, mm -hmm. vinyasa, vinyasa flow yoga, power yoga, they all, those things came from Ashtanga, right? People right. just finding other ways to do it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, and I, you you often say that in class when we get too caught up in these details of like how do I teach this and how do I teach that and like is this okay or is that okay and we get too caught up in that you sort of take a moment you step back and you're just like just teach what's in your heart which is it seems like that's what they were doing and and it came across so effectively um, another thing I, I I was picking up on was they're they're both practicing and teaching the same thing the same postures. They're just sort of getting there in different ways. Like their way of practicing is a little bit different because it might suit them or what they need. And Iyengar Yoga kind of went down this path of alignment. And I, I wanted to bring up another topic that came up for us in class is I think sometimes what happens with this like new approach to asana through alignment is there's like this obsession with anatomy and like making that alignment super precise. And, and the intentions I think can be good. They can come from not wanting to get injured. Um, and I, I sort of like your approach where you, you, you don't get too caught up in those details and somehow that helps you to stay away from injury. Can you talk about that a little bit? Teachers have to teach from their foundation of knowledge and their understanding and find the best way to convey the yoga in the safest, most effective manner. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with learning all about anatomy. Mm -hmm. I gave an example of, of my, my wife who's a dancer on a very high level. You know? Most ballet dancers, dancing from the time they were very young, if you got them in a room and said, okay, name as many muscles as you can in the body, they couldn't. Mm -hmm. Because she's never been to an anatomy class. Yet these dancers are the most elite athletes on the planet. Mm -hmm. To me, they're body controlled and everything, but it wasn't about learning all the muscles and the intricacies of that. Mm -hmm. It was feeling their body in space and moving. That's why I teach from a breath-centric and bandha-centric idea. By listening to the breath, you can avoid injuries. 
I have nothing against people teaching from alignment. But what I've had when you start talking a lot about alignment and you're in something that's a flow, it takes people out of their body and into their head and they start thinking a lot. And maybe they're not even thinking as much about their breath or feeling their breath because they're too much in this thought and imagining all these muscles and all the firings they're doing. And they can get lost in that. Where, like a dancer, they can't be on stage and thinking about all these muscles that are firing. Like, how many muscles does it take for me if I'm standing here to just put my right foot forward and step? Well, that was hundreds of muscle firings. Mm-hmm. You know, things that happen just for my body to with neurological firings and the brain telling the leg to bend and then all the muscles of the foot coming and coming out. Or you just step. Or I talk about children learning to ride a bicycle. You didn't have to go to bicycle riding school. You didn't have to learn anatomy and physiology and all this stuff. You kind of learn to ride a bike. If you teach people to feel their body, to listen to their breath, they'll be safe. Sometimes I have witnessed people that were so focused on alignment, or maybe they're misunderstanding alignment because they're trying to make their body into a shape for what they perceive alignment is meant to be. That at some point in time, yoga had to be pretty. These pretty lines, yeah? Look in old yoga books. It's not pretty at all. Was it that these people knew nothing about alignment or yoga, right? It, they're, they're a mess. Yeah, it might even be booted out of a class. I let people be sloppy. I just don't let them be dangerous. Okay. And so even the kid learning to ride a bike, okay, they're a little wobbly. Maybe they fall in the grass, but you don't let them drive out there into the road. Mm-hmm. So as, as a teacher watching dangerous things or what's something that could cause cause an injury or something. You, you keep an eye for that. But let just people like the child learning to ride a bike the first time you're up. What if your parents said, what about those erector spin eye muscles? Mm. Are you innerly rotating your thighs? Well, ah. yeah. No, you just want them to be able to ride. And yeah, you're doing it. Yeah. yeah. And then there's a freedom and a joy. And sometimes I see people, they're so lost in their head. Even before they begin, they're standing in samastitihi and already their brain is going and they're, they're, so, they're almost paralyzed. Like they're just trying to find something to like just stand. And let it evolve over time. It's not a performance. It doesn't have to be pretty or perfect. But listen to your body. Feel your body. If something hurts, it's not right. Mm-hmm. But sometimes in the name of alignment, something hurts, but you're still doing it because you think your body has to be in that shape. Yeah. But if you love alignment, many people, and it's fascinating. Wow, look at this human body. Oh, my God, the arrangement of all these muscles. It's fascinating. But there's a moment once you're on the mat, just like a dancer when you're stepping onto the stage, you got to let that go and just move. Yeah. yeah. And then... And where do you, where and how do you think adjustments come into that as a teacher? Like the role of adjustments with the teacher and the students. An adjustment can be worth a thousand words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A simple thing, like let's say I'm in down dog and 
part of my palm is not on the floor. Like the knuckle inside under my index finger is not on the floor, my hands. And you want to describe in words, David, press down the base of your index finger. The index finger, that's the finger between your middle finger and your thumb. The base of it is if you imagine your palm to be like a square shape, and on your left hand, it would be the upper right corner of the square. Now, on your right hand, if you imagine that square, it's going to be the upper left corner where it's a 90-degree angle. Those are the (laughs) regions of your hand that you need to push down toward the floor. Or you come over, you tap your finger there, and you say, David, press down here. Da-da, boof. Done. There's an example. You didn't have to use all this chatter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes an adjustment is that much. You touch somewhere. Oh, you touch a shoulder. Drop here. You touch the ribs. Draw your ribs in. Yeah. You didn't have to use so many words. Adjustments can be wonderful. The first day of this training... As I presented it, I I said, there needs to be some criteria for adjusting. Mm -hmm. First, we need to know why we're adjusting. And we concluded that one reason is we might be creating a muscle memory in a student's body. Mm -hmm. And then I ask, are all memories in life good? Mm -hmm. You say, well, no. Oh, well, good adjustment is a good memory. Bad adjustment, bad memory. So what's a good adjustment? Oh, I didn't know I could do that. Or, wow, I feel so good now. Or, oh, that's incredible. Good adjustment. Bad adjustment? They got hurt. They got dropped. They got touched inappropriately. Bad adjustment? Bad memory. Mm -hmm. And I've been teaching this way during these trainings for probably 30 years or more now. And I've always gave the same presentation about how to teach and where to touch and everything. So we had the zero to 10 rule which means don't come in with all your power, which would be 10. So you, you figure out how, how much to touch, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the amount of power, where to touch, obvious areas you should never touch, right? Um, touching too much force or too little force, yeah? Mm-hmm. We come in, we make our adjustment, we move. Ashtang is built around this concept, and it's beautiful. I think of it like Thai massage. If you've ever had Thai massage, It's not only passive, they're grabbing you and stretching you and you're somehow involved in this thing because they're moving your body. So a good adjustment is like that. It's like this Thai massage moment where you're enhancing this line of energy and expanding their body and it should feel like, ah, Mm -hmm. but it requires some skill, but it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's great value in it. Um. As a teacher, if you're uncertain, you can ask the student, hey, would you like an adjustment? If they say no, okay. Mm-hmm. And I always empower the student by announcing that before every Mysore class. If you want my help, get my attention, I'll come help you. If, you, if I come to assist you, you don't want it, you tell me to go away. Mm-hmm. You've now empowered them also just to say no. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm a big believer in adjustments. Yeah. Yeah. There is a responsibility from the teacher but wow, when you get it right, it's beautiful and it's, there's a connection with the teacher and the student and it, it brings you into a whole other realm of practice and experience. Yeah, yeah. Question. Okay. So kind of following along that line um, and kind of also piggybacking on the essence of yoga, mm-hmm. 
I personally love Ashtanga because I find that through these five elements you spoke of, I can kind of drop down into another level within myself and feel my way through the practice and get out of my head, you know, because I personally prefer a less anatomical approach because that's what works for me. But is there ever a moment where you feel that not necessarily a good or bad adjustment, but when you go in to adjust someone, is it possible that at some point that student, even though they may be struggling or they don't, they're not uh, getting to the full expression of the asana, which is not what we're after essentially, um, but you might be interrupting the experience they're having at that moment, is it best, to, would you recommend to either way go in and maybe create that good memory for them and that muscle memory and walk away? Or are there moments where you would just take a step back and I'll, if you see this happening in the student, you can kind of just give them that moment and that space to let that essence kind of flow through them. So as a teacher, we, make, we have to make a decision on how much we adjust someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And how many corrections in a posture. And how many times you're going to keep harping on, on one thing, right? So over-adjusting or, or giving too many adjustments or too much feedback in one thing will just make them feel really uncomfortable and can even feel bad about themselves. Like imagine, you know, visualize this because this is audio, right? So I say, okay, Tatiana, you're in down dog. All right, yeah, let me, I'm going to help you here. Push your palms down, lift your armpits, actually rotate your, your upper arms. No, activate the front of your legs, press your heels down, inwardly rotate your thighs, relax your neck. No, lift the front of your, and you start getting like there's this whole list, and you just start, you know, ah. And if I'm making all these adjustments, they just get lost. And the student can even leave there like, everything's wrong with me. And they go to their therapist after yoga just to feel like, okay. Yeah, so that's an, an example of just giving too much input, too many adjustments. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Then there's something. Let's say you've been trying to help this student each day with something. And you've helped a number of days. And they're trying the best they can. But if every day you're like, come on, and, and, uh, they're going to start getting frustrated. So unless you think they're going to hurt themselves, you just let it go for a while. Otherwise, they start getting, it starts freaking them out a little bit too because they're worried about it. Am I going to get it right? Ah. So yes, there are moments where you look and it's like, oh, I've helped them or I'll help them tomorrow or maybe I'll just mm-hmm. twice this week. Yeah, I don't want to harp on it because, it's, you know, as a student, you start getting frustrated. It's like, I'm doing the best I can, man. And and. As teachers, we tell students all the time, be patient, be patient, be patient. But we have to translate that to ourselves. We have to be patient as well. How many years did it take a student to get their body in a particular shape? Keep that in mind. It's going to take a while to undo it. We've got to be prepared to give this instruction, these adjustments, maybe for years, mm-hmm. right? Just because we have some nice thing we say in a compassionate voice, but you're asking their body to do something that either is physically impossible or they haven't figured out yet how to translate your words and even your adjustment into holding that in their body. And so you you address it and let it go and address it and let it go. And you both teach, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe you've experienced this. 
there's this student of yours and you've been telling them as an example, I'll just make something up. You know, when you're in down dog, your shoulders, you know, they're rolled in by your ears and you try all different, roll your shoulders away from your ears. They don't get, uh, uh, broaden your shoulders. Um, Move one shoulder to California and the other to Florida. Um, and you're just trying all different things. And you, you, you talk about some anatomy thing, and they're not getting it. They're not getting it. They're not getting it. And they go off to a weekend workshop. And maybe it's with Richard Freeman. Mm-hmm. And they come back on Monday and they say, oh, my God, Richard changed my life. I was in Down Dog and he told me to relax my shoulders. It changed everything. <laughs> And you're like, uh, hello, I used those exact words for the last six months in all the classes. What happened? Prior to that moment, they couldn't quite process it. Richard was the lucky guy standing in front of it. When he said it, it clicked. So you have to keep this in mind, right? That, okay, you, you, you keep trying, but give it some space. Give it some, and then maybe come back again and let them evolve. Making adjustments. We're not trying to fix everything in a day. Yeah. We're just making the adjustment. And see, some people, because they have body awareness and this thing you're trying to address, it wasn't because of tightness. It's just they weren't. And all of a sudden they move and they're in place. Some people get it the first time. Other people, it might be 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 times, six months. As a teacher, you just keep doing it. Until it clicks, and then you move on to something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the expectation is you want the student to have a good experience. And a lot of times, even somebody's trying to, to bind and whatever, and I'll go like, you know, you can live a happy, productive, satisfying life and never bind your hands there. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Focus on your breath. Get as close as you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Um, I wanted to bring something you've touched upon in this conversation and also in our training, how the teacher needs to empower the student to speak up and creating this culture within Ashtanga and in the Mysore room where the student like stands up for themselves and speaks up like that hurts or I have this injury or this is going on with my practice because that's they, that's what you have to do out in the real world. There's no card in the real world where you can put out to someone and say like, don't touch me. You have to, you have to be empowered. Um, what, do you have any advice for teachers who are holding space in the Meister room or, or guided class that creates a space where the students feel empowered to like own their practice and what they need? If there's something you believe in and you want to instill in the students, you have to say it more than once. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of class, I might say, like in a Mysore class, um, okay, if you want my assistance, let me know. I'll come and help you. If I come to assist you, don't want my assistance, tell me to go away. A little later in class, hey, remember you guys, if you want my help, let me know. If I come to help you and you don't want, it's okay. People don't believe it, or maybe they didn't hear it the first time, so I might say it half a dozen times each class, right? Remind them, remind them, remind them. I've had people say, yeah, but David, the, you know, the student is too intimidated to address the teacher. and go, but that's the problem. Yeah. Well, by putting a card there that says, don't adjust me, you're empowering them. And I go, no, you're telling them that the teacher's too big and scary, so the best I can hope for is put this card there, and the teacher's going to acknowledge that. 
And then, I, yeah, I gave that example of out on the street, if someone's abusive to you, you can't just pull a card out. This is training for life in the yoga room. And so start there. Okay, so this generation, well, start the next generation of it's okay. Mm-hmm. Now, and there is, you know, there's a teacher-student relationship. It's okay to say, no, this isn't going to hurt me. But it doesn't mean you just do anything you want in a yoga class also, which occasionally occurs. Mm-hmm. Which, try that in your piano class. Yeah. No, I don't play C-sharp chords. <laughs> try it in your ballet class. No, 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 I don't turn to the left. I only turn to the right. <laughs> Try it in your martial arts class. Try it anywhere else. It doesn't work. So there's a difference between going, no, I don't want an adjustment, and just arguing with the teacher because you don't want to do something. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, if it gets to that point, I'd say, and even as a teacher, if if that's the case, I'll say, wow, this is no hard feelings at all, but maybe I'm not the right teacher for you. It's okay. Mm Yeah. But you empower them to speak up, but it's also understood that you're in somebody's class. If I go to someone's class, anybody's class, I will do anything they tell me unless I think it's going to hurt me. Then I'll be respectful and say, no, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. But it's not just because I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. It's because I, I think it'll hurt me or this or that or the other. And a teacher respects that. But I've run into situations where people want to do all kind of stuff. Or they're adding postures and go, no, I like to do all this before that posture. And I go, I'm happy for you, but it's not there. That's different than just having a voice and going, I don't want an adjustment or, you know, that hurt or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. You understand? So there's, Mm -hmm. there's, there needs to be communication. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there's also the, the teacher student relationship and there's teachers have to, abide by that and not abuse what that means. But also the student needs to acknowledge that, well, yoga is a discipline. Because mm-hmm. I've run across people, well, I don't want to do that. Or I don't want, well, yeah. I'm like, well, but, well, I don't do that posture. I'm like, but I'll show you all kind of alternatives to that posture. Mm-hmm. But you can't just erase it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, it's a discipline. And I encourage people to speak up. Yeah. Especially in this instance where we're talking specifically about adjustments, like you don't want an adjustment, no problem. I don't need I don't have to ask why. I just say, okay, I go to the next person. Yeah. 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 And I do, I really feel that from you in, in class. Like I feel like there's space and there's openness to to share honestly. Um, and I really appreciate that. Uh, I have one final question on my mind. Maybe Tati has another. But what's, this is kind of general, but what's kept you coming back to your mats all these years? Like, what keeps you practicing? I'm a simple-minded guy. Mm-hmm. Like a caveman. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, do yoga. Mm-hmm. Feel good. Oh. Mm-hmm. Don't do yoga. Um don't feel good. (laughs) Do yoga. It comes down to that. And I believe that is the only reason anyone should do Ashtanga yoga or any other system of yoga. When you do this, do you feel better afterwards? If so, do it again tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the thing that keeps me coming back is that it makes me feel better. It doesn't mean it's always fun. However, I liken it to flossing our teeth, brushing our teeth. That's not exciting. Mm. It's not like, ooh, I got a new toothbrush and a new flavor and yippee. If I don't floss my teeth and brush my my mouth just feels terrible, I get tooth decay. But So I do it. So it just becomes a thing that you get on the mat and you do your practice. It's like mental floss, right? It sort of cleans things out and it makes me feel good. But it makes me feel good more than just physically. There's a whole other realm that I experience from it. I also, maybe you've heard me describe it, that it's a little like the Star Wars or Star Trek or something, and we're in our spaceship, and the enemy comes and they attack us, and they're sending missiles at us, or whatever, this energy vibrate, and we have to turn on our force field. And it's protecting us for a while. Mm. But the more they're firing away, this force field starts to weaken. Mm -hmm. And eventually it starts getting through the shield. Our choice is either find a way to get our spaceship out of there Mm -hmm. or to rebuild the force field. Mm. When we practice, I feel like I've created some pranic filtration system around my body. So the problems out there in the world don't change. But as they're coming to me, it's Mm -hmm. not as harsh. It, it filters, it slows it down. My reaction is different. I can, I can focus more clearly. Mm-hmm. But what happens, these problems, these missiles, the challenges of life keep coming. Mm-hmm. So if the force field weakens, I need to get on my mat and do practice mm-hmm. again and pump that prana bubble back up so I can get out there and function again. Yeah. So it's a little like that. It, it's a maintenance program that... that is meant to make all other facets of life easier. The asanas aren't the goal, yeah? But it's the journey through the practice and the learning along the way and getting energy in our body. Then, it's a little tricky, but because we want to feel good, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. But we have to be a little careful Mm. that we don't turn yoga into just a selfish, personal Mm. pursuit of just me, 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 I, 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 I want this, I want that. We need to feel good. Mm -hmm. But my personal belief is if you do from your yoga practice, we then have a duty to share the good vibes. So that if you feel good, shine it out there. You don't have to be a yoga teacher to do that. Maybe you're a little more patient with the peop- with your colleagues at work. Maybe you have children. It allows you to be a little more focused or patient with your children for a moment. So the responsibility of gaining this good vibes isn't just to hoard it and pull it in. This is all for me. And now I'm not going to do anything that's going to you know, harsh my mellow, you know. I've No, we've got to get out there and go, I'm going to share the love. So I believe our duty is to practice in such a way that at the end you feel better than when you started, you have more prana than when you started, then you take that good vibe out there and you go out and make the world a better place. 
if each of us can carry that idea, maybe it'll work. Maybe we can. It's not a perfect world. None of us are perfect, but we have this yoga, and maybe it can help yeah, a little bit to soothe some of the distresses and stresses other people are, are experiencing. I mean, there's wars, there's droughts, there's all kind of stuff. And we get all lost or, or you know, bummed out. Oh, man, I, I did my practice. I still can't get my left leg behind my head. And we get worked up about all this stuff that in the bigger picture of life doesn't really matter. So putting it in perspective, get on the mat. Get some energy in there. Yeah, you need some energy for yourself, just like you need food. But then share what you can. Yeah, Don't hide from the world. Even going to Mysore or something, that's great. Many teachers do it. Fantastic. Go there. Recharge your batteries. It's why people go. And I've even had people say, oh, when I'm in Mysore, I feel so spiritual. And I go, oh, really? So you're living off the backs of people that are making $20 a month. They're washing your clothes, preparing your meals. Your only duty is to go in that room over there and stretch for an hour and a half of the day. And the rest of the time you're sat poolside eating a veggie burger. (laughs) All that's good. Get energy in your body. But I don't know if that's spiritual. If you're there to recharge, great. But then it is our responsibility to go back home and become a productive citizen within the communities where we reside. Mm -hmm. It's not just hanging, waiting for the next asana. So once we get the juice, share the love. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's a great place to end. So inspiring. And just thank you for everything that you keep sharing with the world. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you to both of you. Um, It's just a pleasure and an honor to be here. Monica, Tatiana, and Tatiana, and uh, Miami Life Center, and Kino, and Tim, and Joseph, and Edgar, and everybody that makes this beautiful space happen. It's my pleasure to be here, my honor. I can't wait to come back and see you all again sometime. Yeah. And I can't wait for your book to come out. Yeah. Which, should we give a little sneak peek? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, I personally would love a sneak peek. <laughs> well, the peek is, I'll just make you, it's the first page. The first page. chapters in this book. Yeah, purposely. As a reader, I like to have short chapters. So this is just the first bit. The first chapter is called Aliens Exist. Aliens Exist. I should know since I am one myself, or at least I have felt like one for most of my life. I've always had the sense that I somehow wasn't meant for this world. From a young age, I've never felt as if I quite fit in. Maybe there was a mistake in the celestial paperwork that landed me here. I grew up in Texas where sports are religion, guns are accessories, politics are red, minds are set, and being different is discouraged. I will swam against that current of perceived norms, which at times hasn't been an easy task. As a result, I've discovered things upstream that I would never have found had I simply gone with the flow. I've come to love my life with all its crazy twists, turns, dead ends, epiphanies, quests, struggles, successes, failures, joys, and sorrows. So, 
Maybe I was born on the right planet after all. Maybe all of us feel like alien visitors passing through, trying to find our way. Maybe you'll find encouragement in my story to pursue your own path and to take chances that will allow you to discover magic and deep potential upstream that far exceeds your previous expectations. I hope that you are at least entertained by my clumsy yet enthusiastic attempts to seek deeper meaning in a crazy world. So good. I'm super excited. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> all right. Nice. Thank you so much, David. Thank you very much. Awesome. I love you all. We love you. Bye. <laughs> hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.